Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yog Malark. And I am Thumbs. And this is going to be part five of Machiavelli. But before we get into that, we've got our lovely intro section here. And first and foremost, that we need to talk about today in the intro section is where do we go from here? Yeah, I know this this book was a little short in terms of like overall chapter length. Only I, I, seven parts is uh, quick when we're doing it every week. It is. It's very quick. Uh, on that same vein, we've got a couple weeks before we're going to be transitioning to a new book, but we wanted to give you, the listeners, the chance to participate and choose where we go from here. On the list again from last time, because there's a part of me that really wants to do this book, <laughs> in case anybody wants to vote for it, is Klaus Witz's On War. It is a chonker. You could use this book as a paperweight, as a cornerstone. It, it, I mean, it, this is a big one. So it would take us a while to get through, and that's always nice, because a detailed study is a lot of fun. We've enjoyed Machiavelli, we've enjoyed Sun Tzu, but to have something to really sink your teeth into, I mean, Klaus Witz, he's got that going on. This book is on Audible, and the average cost for an Audible book that's like 8 to 20 hours hours long is like 10 to 20 bucks sure this sure. is 41 dollars so nice. it, it's got to be like 30 40 hours long like yeah. it is oh, i mean and the, the book itself is big i've got some big books on my shelf and it's one of the biggest books i own just in terms of like size sheer size and like mm -hmm. mass so i like this book it's a good one it's it's also very thick so uh, it would be something that we could really sink our teeth into so if you go on there heart react for Klauswitz's On War. The second one we've got here is for a Laugh React for De Soxes, My Reveries on the Art of War. The most pompous title. <laughs> well, every the, time I hear it, I laugh. He's the Marshal De Sox. I mean, like, just, just based on his name, he needs to De have... Sox. Okay, sorry. De Sox. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 a a decent book. It's a little bit shorter, but it's written in the same in the same vein as the Art of Wars that we've studied before, where you've got these kind of maxims that they're putting out. These what era is that one from? I don't actually know. Well, De Sox lived in the late 1600s, early 1700s, and he was writing uh, kind of during that time. So you've got that transition between the warfare types that was occurring as gunpowder became more common. So that's about 200 years ahead of where we are right now. Yes, so we've sir. done ancient ancient China, 1450. 50s, 1490s-ish here, and then this around when America was first being settled by Europeans. Uh, well, we were already kind of, we were being settled, developed, and we were actually getting pretty close to our Revolutionary War by the end of his life. Mm -hmm. That's fair. So yeah, this would be an interesting read in terms of seeing how the art of war progresses throughout the years. Again, as the name implies, he's a little full of himself, a little pompous, but... All these guys who think that their opinions on the art of war are important, they're going to be a little pompous. If we're still talking about you a few hundred years later, you were probably pompous. If they're talking about us in 200 years, I'd call myself pompous. Oh, we're sure. absolutely oh, pompous. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're reading uh, books and talking about them to nerds. And educating you. <laughs> so, DeSox, uh, give yourself a, a, give a little laugh react for that one. The next one we've got is another one, uh, kind of a repeat, just because, I mean, you obviously recognize the name Frederick the Great. This guy, he was one of those ones that deserved the name the great after his name he didn't even put it there himself other people called him we the already great. covered a battle of his haven't we yep we've covered a battle of his so if you want to know a little bit more of what he says about military tactics and military science his book is going to be on there for the shocked react that little shocked face <gasps> and it's the instructions of frederick great to his generals these are the basically the marching orders that he was giving to his generals in terms of how to run an army so his focus is obviously
obviously on the administrative, bureaucratic, and actual tactical portions of military warfare or Mm -hmm. military strategy, yeah. And then the last one we've got is a sad react. Not necessarily that it's a really sad thing, but we're going back a little bit further in time to Vegetius. And he wrote a book on the military's institutions of the Romans. We've covered a lot of Roman history. I mean, there's a lot of Roman history to cover. And one of the things that I felt would be kind of cool would be go into a deeper tactical study of how the Romans actually fought, again, what their manuals actually said. And this was is a book that is actually on the military institutions of the Romans. Well, one thing we talked about last week was the Romans are interesting because they're about as far back as you can get and still get really detailed, at least in more Western culture, right, right. still get really detailed information on how they fought. Absolutely. We know the Greeks, but we're not getting the down and dirty. With the Romans, we have so much writing. And they were so technical in their writing. Yes. That's another thing that really benefits us, is they really tried, like Latin itself is a very technical language, and their writings were very technical. And they weren't mixing the gods in in quite the same way that a lot of previous cultures would have. Like They kind of viewed history in a similar way that we view history. Mm-hmm. Other cultures don't have that. So it's really interesting to go back that far and get this really detailed look. And I'm finding a lot of that actually does translate well to Belagarth. Absolutely. Especially because when we're talking about De Socks, obviously you've got the introduction of gunpowder. Even Frederick the Great was was using technology that we wouldn't have been using in the battle games that we run. Like you say, the nice thing about Vegetius is the institutions of the Romans are going to match ours in terms of what they could produce militarily. I mean, mm-hmm. they could obviously have bigger siege weapons. A thousand times we... the numbers, but... <laughs> Yeah, swords and shields, bows and arrows. That's that's the kind of time frame. The, that the that basic is. tech is equivalent. Yeah, we put it to you, the listeners. We we really like all four of these books. I've read all four of them and gotten a lot out of every single one of them. I think each of them would be a good study for us. Again, that's a heart react for Clausewitz's On War, a laugh react for De Sox's My Reveries on the Art of War, a shocked react for Frederick the Great and the instructions of Frederick the Great for his generals, and a sad react for Vegetius and his military institutions of the Romans. And you can just go to our Facebook page and vote in the next couple of weeks, and we will announce it during the transition episode. So the next thing uh, is that in, in terms of this, we wanted to include a little bit more of sci-fi and fantasy into Sorry, what we're guys, talking about. Sorry, guys, our intro today is super detail-oriented. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of, what do you call it? Grunt work. Business. Business. <laughs> business chat. We're talking business right now. Come on. Sorry, I interrupted you there, though. That's Go okay. ahead. I... Um, one of the other things that we're going to be doing is between our studies of historical works, we're going to be doing a fiction focus on certain sci-fi or fantasy elements. Obviously, the, the rules of military science don't apply in a sci-fi or fiction setting because you can say you have the whatever drive, and the whatever drive is able to accomplish whatever the real physics can't. So in terms of looking at sci-fi or fantasy for actual military science, not a great idea. But in terms of analyzing it and saying what works and what doesn't compared to the other things that we've read, I mean, I'm the kind of person that sits there during a movie and says, well, they wouldn't have done that. So like, we're, we're going to do that with some fiction too. Well, and this started from what our first book is going to be, which is the Klingon Book of War, Yeah. which we had both picked up a couple years ago because we're both big nerds mm-hmm. and we both really love the Klingons because they're space Mongol Vikings. Kapow. And we were like, ho, 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 we've done, you know, Art of War and Art of War. 
we should do the Klingon. And then like both of us pause and we're like, oh, actually, that'd be really fun. Maybe we should. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> these things are going to be like standalone special episodes in between the the main books. We're not going to spend an entire chapter by chapter of these books. They're fun. I really recommend them if you can get your hands on them. They're not actual treatises about people's lives. This is primarily told for enjoyment. Right. It, for entertainment. Uh, for those of us who enjoy these particular genres, they add a little bit of depth. They add a little bit of color to the experience. For instance, one of the other ones we're going to do at some point is that I have a copy of the Imperial Infantryman's Handbook from 40K. And so we're going to take a look at the recommendations that the Administratum gives to the Imperial Infantryman and see whether or not it's something that, you know, somebody like Machiavelli or Sun Tzu might recommend. And then we've got other things, books from Star Wars. Kind of plan on going all over with this. So. Lord of the Rings has all sorts of battles we could look at. Yeah. Yeah. If you've got a, a sci-fi or fantasy genre that you want us to take a look at for one of these, please write us and, and we'd love to examine it at some point it's a fun break for us in between these like really heavy books and again a lot of the the ways that we're applying these really heavy books is to Belagarth, which is like a fantasy fighting thing or to 40k which is like a sci-fi fantasy thing mm -hmm. so it's it's just fun it's just fun to kind of bring it back around and make it applicable to what we're doing too and i think thumbs yeah. Now that we're done talking about all of these lovely uh, bureaucratic things, and we've gotten through all that, you had an amazing run yesterday. Yeah, I was going to talk about a fight that I did. Because and by run, we don't mean that he, he went jogging. He thumbs had, don't run. Thumbs don't run, he abhors it. So uh, he, I ran a lot in this fight. <laughs> so one thing we had talked about in a couple of previous episodes is, especially if you are a spear user, practice fighting alone if you get separated from a line with your spear still, because it's going to happen. Right. And it happened here. I went up against four people. Mm. Two of them were legged. Two of them were sword and board. Oof. And I was me and my spear and my backpack shield and no one else was left. That sounds like a rough pick right there. And the, the the reason I was able to pull it off is, and these are all good fighters, but they came at me in like different waves mm -hmm. and I was able to leg one, run far enough away that they couldn't do anything to me. Right. A armed guy and a sword and board came up Ooh. and I managed to stab one in the, uh, the armed guy in the gut and then the just barely managed to get a leg shot with my spear against the sword and border and nice. again run away to wherever sure last next person armed get them drop the stuff pick up a glaive and i could take off the uh the legged people at my leisure and so you you made sure that you played the distance you mm -hmm. never engaged them all at once you strung it out so you had several small one-on-one -on -one fights rather than having one big four-on-one -on -one fight even though you were at a technical gear disadvantage you used all of the advantages of the gear to your benefit yeah that's yeah nice military science there bud and then i puffed and bellowed like i hadn't <laughs> run for six months and had to have like a sit down for a moment before my next fight but sure, sure. cardio is important people oh I, boy i haven't been doing it either but i feel it every time i remember that yeah 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 if you're a person who's doing cardio take this as a pat on the back keep doing it it's one of the best things you can have in this game you're a better person than me again i'm not doing cardio right now either so you know we can just sit here and pat them on the back while you know wheezing and puffing over here ourselves <laughs> good job good job <laughs> But no, um, so yeah, you be looking for a new picture at some point, be looking for some new information, and uh, please go on and, and, like we said, vote for where you want us to go from here. But I think we've done enough chitting and enough chatting. I think it's about time to it's get time some, for some learning. Meat and some potatoes. So let's talk about part five, Machiavelli. So 
So we've got two main issues that we're going to be dealing with today when we're talking about part five of Machiavelli. There was a lot of information in here that honestly wasn't that useful to what we do in Belagarth or in 40k. For instance, one of the things he recommended was having a five by five marching column when you're moving through the country. That's five companies by five companies, a square that is moving across the territory. And if That's you've got 25 companies. Yeah. But the we'll issue is... We'll be lucky is, to have 25 people. But the issue is, I mean, even if that were possible with the numbers that we get in Belagarth or in, in the SEA or in Amgard, the problem is it's obvious that Machiavelli has never led troops through mountainous or forested terrain because trying to move something that large and that unwieldy through terrain like that would be borderline impossible. How many people were in each company? I can't find the number in the chapter. What he describes it as is 200 arm lengths on each side. So we're still talking a few hundred feet wide. Five of those, a few hundred feet wide. We live in a valley with mountains. His right. thing straight would not work. Here. We would not be able to move through anything. If you have any sort of varied terrain, like marshes, rivers. I mean, if you're in the wide open plains, this might work. It yeah, in South Dakota, well. you'd probably be set. Sure. But in, in any place with any other kind of terrain, you're not doing very well. So if you're reading along and you see him recommending this as this square as being the, the best way to move, he's right if the terrain allows, which in most places it's absolutely not going to, unfortunately. But I, I think Machiavelli, he wasn't his main thing was that he was a, an advisor. He was a theorist. A theorist. He didn't necessarily lead a whole lot of armies in the field. Most of the things he says need to be taken with a little grain of salt, which is why you, I've, we've had so many sections on here of me arguing with a dead guy. One thing we, I remember when we were first reading about Machiavelli, I was re-familiarizing myself with him, is they talked about how bad his army was mm -hmm. when he actually ran it. Like, his ideas that are great ideas here, we're still talking about them, but the one that he made to, like, prove his ideas was legendary in the area for being a bad army. And I, I think a big part of that is he has so many extreme adherences that need to be done here. Like, there's so much that every individual troop needs to memorize in terms of, like, movements and their place in these mathematical formulas that he's come up with, that if every person who was in the military had a completely clear head and was able to focus on nothing but the military and memorize these things, they might be able to do it. But and anyone who's ever played a foam combat sport or any kind of fight knows that that is absolutely not going to work. No, no. I, I, so, yeah, what he's envisioning is what is perfect. Unfortunately, what is perfect is often tempered with what is real. And in this case, this particular idea doesn't work. So I wanted to get that out of there before we discussed anything else, just to say, yes, I'd taken a look at it. I know a few of you have written me and, and asked me to kind of explain some of the big number sequences that he goes through. And my response on this is the same as has been to others. His really complicated numeric sequences don't really translate well to the real world. The idea is good, but having to do it in such a specific way doesn't allow for the vagaries of the battlefield. Well, and even <clears> on <throat> more experienced stuff, the rules are so different when you're talking about a thousand people versus ten people. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. So even if you just scale it down, a lot of times it'd be like, well, you need 0.5 of a person. <laughs> or just like, it's <laughs> it, it gets so small that it's not applicable. Right. Right. So that's exactly the point. These scales are just totally different as well. Take it with a grain of salt. Try to get what you can from it. But like I said, this, this particular idea isn't the greatest in terms of direct application. Mm -hmm. So the first section that he talks about that I thought is really directly applicable to what we do, at least in a certain light, is dealing with uncertainty. Now, this is something that doesn't directly apply to the situation that we're going to find in most 40k or foam fighting or SEA type games, which is to say that we've found a field, we've determined where we're going to be fighting 
and the teams know what's going to happen before it happens. There's a lay on. Everybody does what they're supposed to do. The rules of the game have been explained. What we're talking about with this particular section is ambush and dealing with the idea of looking for ambushes. Not going to be applicable in most open field combats. That being said, I know I've been to some Eastern events that have very large play areas that have areas where you can run a, a forested combat where you start not seeing the enemy team and having to walk a fair ways in order to see or to meet the enemy team. And so in those situations, what we're about to talk about is absolutely applicable. If you've got a field that is more forested or more craggy than your average field, these are some good things to keep in mind. The first one that he says is the importance of having scouts or a picket line. Uh, we've discussed the importance of a picket line before, which is to say the people, you're like skirmishers, the yeah. people who are out in front of your regular force, they give you an idea of where the enemy is. These are even more important when you obviously don't know where your enemy is, making sure that you've got scouts in front of you and that you're running proper pickets. In, in terms of what we do, I don't know if we actually have the ability to have a picket because it's like an actual fortification, but just think about your flankers and stuff that are going out ahead. And if you're one of those people, remember a scout is only as useful as the information that they send back. If you run out and get killed by the enemy without sending any information back to your team, that the, you didn't do your job. <laughs> <laughs> Even on the flat fields we were talking about, this can just be the person that is keeping an eye on the behind. True. Yeah, your, your rear guard or your reserves, for instance, uh, they, they also count as a scouts because when Machiavelli is talking about moving, he also talks about the importance of not just having scouts to the front, but also scouts behind you. Yeah, you don't want people sneaking up on you. And to the sides. Like, really, scouts all over the place are a good idea because where you don't have vision, that's where the enemy might be. You know? mm -hmm. On a flatter field, you're thinking less about terrain and you're th more thinking about if there are multiple teams sure sure so not just like a one-on-one -on -one that's less important but if they you know it's a unit battle and there's six different units right you might not need to worry about specific terrain as much as that mountain right, right. but you might be thinking that unit behind this other unit we're keeping an eye on or sure sure anything that's really kind of obscuring vision these is still going to be useful for and i suppose now that we're you've drawn that analogy i actually had another idea that kind of applies off of that i've been in a larger unit that uses a smaller unit or a less experienced unit as like a buffer zone. I also do mm -hmm. this with fighters in all on all. If I manage to leg somebody, I'll put them between me and the rest of the field because that means that I've got that much more reaction time because they've got to go through that team or that person first. So yeah, actually we, we do use pickets in Belagarth. Sometimes they don't know that they're pickets. But they're um, pickets. But they are pickets. <laughs> and this all comes back to this idea of a marching column. Obviously if you're moving through most forested areas or mountainous areas, you're not going to be moving in a large 200 by 200 arm length square. That just doesn't make sense. You're going to be moving in what are called marching columns. So a marching column, again, has a strong force at the front, a strong force at the back, and then you've got your, your weaker forces, your artillery, your archers, your baggage train, kind of interspersed throughout the middle to mm -hmm. make sure that it's protected. To kind of take Machiavelli's square idea, though, you could have multiple of these uh, columns that are moving through the same country, kind of like parallel to one another. So instead of trying to keep the whole force absolutely in one large formation, breaking it up into, say, you know, five columns and then moving those through that are supporting and within range of supporting one another, that's far more practical yeah. in terms of like what is possible. When we talk about wolf packing, we talk about staying close enough to each other. To and be able this, to support, yeah. The same thing except one person instead of a column. 
column. Sure, absolutely. And so making sure that, yes, it's okay to split up just a little bit, but to make sure you're in a supporting range. Because the next point that Machiavelli makes is stick together. If you allow yourself to get so separated that the enemy was able to move on you quick enough that nobody else can respond, you're too far away. It's always fun, kind of on both sides, when one step too far is taken and suddenly you realize that they'll get there before the help will. Dun, dun, dun. And it's kind of fun if, like, you're the person who suddenly has the advantage or the person who is now dead. Because you have that, you feel kind of smart, but kind of dumb at the same time. Right. Like, oh, no. Because the switch happens. You can feel it, too. Like, suddenly it's just like, oops, we it, got it's instantaneous. too far apart. And then everything just falls apart. It's So sticking together, making sure you're within each other there's threat zones, being able to support one another, exceptionally important, I think. Mm -hmm. Especially, like you were saying, as a spearman, because while you can occasionally pull off a really bombad 4v1 scenario, like somebody did yesterday, in most cases, does a spearman want to be alone, Thumbs? I'm not going to pull that move off for another year or two. You Best sure? case scenario. You sure, like, I'd like to get it on film next time if you want to plan it. Oh, that'd be great. As I said, I do a lot of spearing when I'm fighting in an all-on-all, -all, but not because I expect to do well, but because it's good practice for when I do take a step too far out. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. But I don't go into that being like, I am going to clean up. It's more like, I would like to survive? Maybe. I am going to practice my cardio. Yes. We should both. Everybody. Again, that's the that might be the underlying message of today's podcast. Cardio. <laughs> cardio. You're sticking together. You're sending your scouts. You're making sure that you've got your columns that are self-supporting. You need to reface toward threats. What this allows you to do, especially if you're moving and a... And a threat comes to you perpendicularly. So it comes like, let's say on the left flank or on the right flank. Obviously you need to reposition your front in order to face that threat accordingly. That being said, unfortunately, and in some sort of ambush scenario, it's entirely possible that once you get your entire front set up in one direction, that there might be a threat from the other direction as well that was just waiting for you to reset. And so the idea is to make sure that you've got elements. Again, this this column idea has the right ideas to it, or the, the, the square idea has the right things to it. It just doesn't follow through very well in like terms of practicality, because again, this is a this is a good point. You you get attacked on the right flank and everybody floods the right flank. Well, what happens if there's suddenly people on the left flank? Mm -hmm. So to have somebody over there, perhaps not the side of the square that Machiavelli describes, but perhaps just some people, like we were talking a rear guard or counterflankers. I that cannot understate the value of counterflankers enough. They're amazing. They're my favorite people on the field. I'm really bad at it myself, but... It takes cardio to be a counterflanker. <laughs> I used to be a counterflanker, and then I took an arrow to the knee. No, no, that wasn't the reason. I love my wife. <laughs> Well, you don't know that? The arrow to the knee thing? That's an allusion to being married. Oh, okay. That's what it means. Like, like it's it's a, a phrase or a, a euphemism. Sorry, or a, what are they called? An idiom, a cultural idiom. You know, oh, I took an arrow to the knee. It's like, you know. I was unaware of this. I thought yeah. that was just a really bad guard in Skyrim. No, I mean, uh, if that was the case, then like a quarter of the guards in Skyrim really need to get shin guards because <laughs> like that's, it's just a, a chronic problem in Skyrim. But no, that's, that's based on like an old Nordic phrase of I took an arrow to the knee which is to be like i got married i've got responsibilities at home that's so much more clever right it actually makes sense when you think of it that way anyways <laughs> we digress this idea of being able to reface toward threats is very important and it's something that needs to be taken into consideration even if you're not moving in a square which you really shouldn't be moving in a square so the next thing that needs to be done when you're dealing with uncertainty you have to have clear concise and precise commands we've gone over this before i think machiavelli or uh, that sun tzu touched on this as well needing to have very good commands because telling somebody to turn around is not the same as saying turn left or turn right or look behind because those are actually 
actual directions. That yeah, turn around could mean any one of those three things. You're, just don't look where you're looking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you get a lot of options for that. So yeah, clear, concise commands are good. Obviously, in something like Belagarth, we're not allowed to use the word hold. It's very tempting to use the word hold, but... Hold in, the line! For those of you that don't play Belagarth or Dagger here or another game that uses this term, saying hold is the way that you stop the game because somebody has been injured and the game needs to stop so that medics can come deal with them. It means all fighters take a knee. Mm-hmm. So like, we are not fighting, you are aware of what's going on, you are out of the way. So screaming hold the line gets is, real confusing. Yeah, because obviously you're not actually trying to summon a medic, then everybody else on the field thinks that you are. So that word is just off limits. You're not allowed to use that, unless of course you're trying to summon the medic, in which case, go ahead. But you can say stay the line. That's one of the ones that I like to use. It's got a very strong st at the beginning of it. So stay the line, it echoes. Forward, I mean, that's that's always just nice, just giving them a direction to go, not staying where you are, but going forward. But again, just just saying very we'll do uh form up on so and so that's a good one too because you can look around and be like oh i know where they are form up on sin and we all like run and set up around sin and then then sin's got a form on her yeah (laughs) exactly and that but that's good because again it's a clear concise command that everybody can follow because they know what you mean and it's kind of the idea that we'd had before about having a standard that same idea of everybody knows where to go because of the standard that command is basically putting a temporary standard on somebody Right. Yes. And it doesn't have the uh, disheartening factor of someone with a standard. When that standard goes down, it feels bad. It does. It feels really bad because suddenly your flag's touching the ground and there's like all sorts of protocol that needs to be observed. Taps needs to be played. It's an issue. But I've seen, I, you know, I absolutely see what you're saying. It is demoralizing. It's demoralizing. But so it's much easier to just be like four months in and then, you know, she doesn't have to worry about having a flag. She can actually just fight. That's nice. So yeah, whatever your team or your realm uses for this, it's going to be different for everybody, but just try to make sure that they are as clear and concise as possible. It's going to also be different based on dialect. The English language is different and and the German language, the French language, the Russian language, all languages differ based on where you are. So like we said with just now with that arrow in the knee thing, not knowing what that means, you're like, wow, Skyrim's guards are really bad at blocking low. Just last week, uh, so yesterday on Sunday, we had a guy named Mooch who is a Florida dagger here fighter oh nice who just recently moved up to uh helena which is a couple towns over so he came over for a practice cool and like there was even just some definite like we need to explain some terms here not because he didn't know what he was doing but But just because it's a little different here yeah we are on the far side of the country from that so the florida dialect and the montana dialect there's just going to be some issues there so if you are traveling to somewhere new like i did to tennessee make sure that you touch in and make sure that the words that you think mean what they mean mean what they mean Mm. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Let's say you've got all these things in place. You're moving through, you've got your supporting columns, you've got your clear, concise commands all, all thought out, everybody's sticking together, everything's good. Now you're looking for the ambush. Now you're looking for traps. What are the signs that we can see that our enemy is attempting to manipulate us? Because one of the things that Sun Tzu talks about is how to do this to your enemy. But he doesn't necessarily say how to spot it in your enemy. So Machiavelli goes over that a little bit here. The first thing he says, and this is very, it makes sense, beware of the suitable terrain. So if you're moving through a canyon, you're moving through a thicket, you're moving through anything that obscures your vision or breaks up your formation, those are perfect places for an ambush. Mm -hmm. And so if you're in a perfect place for an ambush, be ready for an ambush. It's a good idea to be ready for an ambush, yeah. You're going down the valley. Know what's on the sides. Yeah. So that's fairly self-explanatory, I think. 
uh, uh, making sure that you're just paying attention when you're moving through those types of terrain. The next thing that he recommends is also something that Sun Tzu mentioned, which is the idea of watching the birds. And because this is being mentioned by two different people in two very different times, in very different places, it's one of those things that it actually is very true. Birds will not land where there are a bunch of people gathered. That's a permanent thing. That's just, it's just birds do not want to. They're like, that's a dangerous place to be. I don't know these people. That's my purse. They just don't want to be there. You know what I'm saying? So like watching the birds and if you see birds circling but not landing in a particular area, that's a good spot to watch. There's something there that those birds don't want to interact with. In the same token, Machiavelli recommends watching for the dust. And this is something that Sun Tzu said too. If you see dust clouds rising in the distance, that's probably motion of some sort. Dust does not fly on its own. And a tramping army does kick up a great deal of dust. Oh yeah. Just check out any field on a week-long event oh. by the end of the event. Especially in the West where we don't get a whole lot of rain. Yeah. It does not matter how good the field is. There's a column of dust. If you're late to the event, don't worry about map quest. Just follow the column of dust. You'll be fine. It's infantry, not chariots. Yeah. So now we've come to battle. Let's say that like you've spotted your ambush and you, you've defeated it successfully. And now your opponent and you are locked in battle. You're fairly evenly matched. And then suddenly your opponent withdraws. Suddenly and unreasonably. As in, there's no, like if somebody They were doing pretty well, they but were suddenly doing well. they're like, whoop, nope. Or they were doing equally. And then suddenly they just dip out. This is a, a sign. This is a cause for alarm. You need to pay attention to this because if somebody is dipping out of a battle that they might be able to win, they're definitely going to be able to win the one that you're going to follow them into. Well, and especially because it's a risk. Absolutely. Like any kind of retreat, even an ordered retreat, is a risk because you have more things that you have to think about than they do at that point. Yeah, you got to walk backwards while making sure you don't die. Uh, that actually takes quite a bit of coordination, <laughs> believe it or not, especially if you've got a really full kit on. This idea of watching for that. Don't just be, that's, that's one of those too good to be true things. There's suddenly running away from you think mongols because the mongols love to do that they'd be like oh we're running away and it's like okay we're gonna chase you oops shouldn't have done that like everybody else who's done it so just just be aware of this be be aware that people will do this i've done this i've like pulled away suddenly to make somebody chase me because i wanted them because i knew they were right-footed to put their right foot forward so i could get them in a kidney wrap oh you can also use this on a smaller field too if you want to draw somebody's foot out figure out what foot they favor and then throw to that side when they step you'll look super fast but it's because you planned it the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing on the, along that same mind is affected weakness. If people who are normally organized suddenly look disorganized. If people who are full of courage suddenly are full of fear. If somebody who was very, very spirited in combat looks suddenly tired for no reason. This is a feigned weakness. This is them attempting to put you into a position of, ooh, I don't need to try as hard because I'm going to win anyways. It's a trick. This is the exact opposite of something we've talked about several times, which is feigning confidence. Right, right. Because we've talked multiple times about walking up in a place that you don't have a chance of winning and look kind of bored and like really you're gonna try this people will hesitate this is being like oh no i'm bad exactly and that will draw somebody out but much like you said when you're projecting that confidence that can make somebody hesitate and not come on as quickly feigning weakness can make them come on even quicker they might even do so without preparing or really realizing what they're walking into there was a fighter here in stygia for the longest time named slag and i watched him do this all the time he'd go out there with his big shield and his long sword and he'd droop his shoulders and his face would look tired he'd start breathing heavy and he'd look at his opponent with like half-lidded eyes and then the leon would be called and he would explode into this uh, he wasn't tired at all it was I've, obvious i have definitely used it before i have to uh, i have to it, it throws people off especially when i'm fighting newer fighters i'll do it because mm -hmm. they're more likely to fall for it sure to be honest which is true anyways and also i don't want to seem like i'm bullying them being like ah see how good i am <laughs> this is something also just that you want to teach people 
to be aware of early because it's a commonly used tactic. Right? Oh yeah, I don't know anybody who doesn't use a feint or or some form of mind games when they're fighting their opponent when they really want to win. Mind games are important because it's not cheating. We're not asking you to break the rules or anything like that. You're just using the human mind against itself. Well, and if I'm standing there looking exhausted, being like, oh god. I might actually be that exhausted, but I am still confident that it is safe for me to do that thing. Well, you're still dangerous. I mean, if you have a sword in your hand, you're dangerous. If my shield is down, it's because I am confident that I have time to get it up before a shot comes at me. And that's the only reason you're going to see that. Again, and if you go into every fight look, looking at it like this, then if somebody is actually weak, you're going to just... You're yeah, gonna, you'll be fine. Tromp them. But if they're fainting or if they're feigning this weakness, then you're going to be prepared for it. And that's the idea. It's not going to happen every time, but when it does happen, you'll be prepared. And similar thing of this is feints mm -hmm. like i will leave my right shoulder open just a little bit all of the time and try to provoke that cross and yeah people will cross on me and because i'm left-handed all i have to do is roll a little bit and my shield is super covering that shoulder again and i have your entire side to eat up right there pretty tasty so if they're like that shot is obviously covered then that shot is probably actually covered or at least enough that you should consider the possibility it's something to think about no doubt and it's something to keep in, con in, in consideration because like we said it's not every time that somebody's opening is a feint or, or a or oh, yeah. a, pro a provocation but if it looks too good to be true it probably is it probably is so the last thing we want to talk about before we transition to a camp life section because Machiavelli actually talks a lot about what camp life should look like and we realized that we haven't really talked about that on this show. And it's actually something that's very useful, especially for newer fighters. If you haven't been to many events, there's there's obvious, there's some things that you might not think about before you go out. So we're going to talk about that. I don't remember. Was it Crinoline that once made like a chaos prep pre-list? Sorsha, Sor I believe. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. I we'll see if we can find a copy of it. And we'll repost it to the page. Absolutely. Because yeah, that was actually a really good prep list of just like the gear um, that you would need beforehand. Because uh, there's a lot. And and. While every individual person doesn't need all of it, it's a good thing to have in your camp. But before we talk about that, I've got one more thing to talk about in terms of dealing with uncertainty, and that's the idea of proper fording. And yes, you heard me right. I said fording, as in like fording a stream going across it. Again, you might, especially us Western fighters, are like, when are we ever going to use that information? But yeah, when you first talked about this, I was like, what? We don't ford creeks. But when I went to Rag, on that same place where we had the woods battle, there was absolutely a creek that went through the place. And it was just kind of on one of the edges, but you could use it to get a good flank on the enemy. And so there were people who were going through it and they were waiting in the section that came up to like their navel or mid chest when there was a riffle just a little ways down. This was funny when you first started talking to me about this before. I was like, wait, no, that's really dangerous. But these are Eastern rivers. Again, this was this was not during like typhoon season or whatever you guys call your wet season over there. The crick was moving pretty slow and it was very reasonable. He was more in danger of getting a leech than he was of getting swept downstream. Oh, yeah. You and I have both done Montana Conservation Corps, yes, and we're the... used to, like, even if... I'm not talking about, like, total whitewater rapids, but it still has a decent pace moving. Mountain water is different. Yeah. Very different. So, and, and, and obviously this is going to play a part wherever you are, the, the strength of the current, but wherever you are, you don't want your gear getting wet because things rust. Trench foot is absolutely a thing, so the, the less foam water... Foam gets moldy. Foam gets very moldy, so trying to keep your gear dry is very important. So if you do need to cross a stream, you want to look for a proper ford. And by a proper ford, I mean if the water is very smooth on the top, that indicates that it is fairly deep because the current isn't near the surface. But if you see a strong riffle, which is like the, like the ripples that are on the top of the surface, that indicates that the rocks are relatively 
really close to the bottom. The same thing is you can look at the banks. If the banks kind of mellow out and become flatter near an area, that area is going to be shallower. Whereas if you're looking at the banks and they're both very sheer on both sides or if steeper, you step in that, you're just going down. It's very deep. It is admittedly kind of funny and maybe not the best part of me that thinks this is funny. Watching people who aren't used to this, try for it. because And it's yeah. the same thing that I did when I was young. Sure. Uh, Before you learned how to properly ford a river. Yeah. I, I saw the, <laughs> the flat spot and I'm like, that part looks really calm. That's the way to go. And it was not the way to go. It was not. Because next thing I knew, I was up to, I was about to say beard, but I didn't have a beard, up to my chin in usually kind of nasty water. Yeah, it ain't good. Which is way worse than up to my knees in in water that I have to like grip a little against. And now think that you've got a supply train going through there. Now oh, think yeah. that you've got a bunch of like, like hundreds of pounds of gear that you're trying to track. Like proper fording well, could be a matter of life or death back in the wind. I mean, it could be now if you were to do it. Yeah, real, I, real I mean, you and I have both been in places where like a mule had to, like a pack mule had to ford. If you've not seen that, that is still a lot of work. Very impressive. Very impressive. And that's one mule. Yeah, exactly. We're talking about armies worth of supplies here. So again, proper fording is important. Not something that you'd never normally think about, but in case you're a person that now finds themselves at rag and you, you find the crick that I'm talking about about look for the riffle don't you don't need to go swimming it's not necessary we're going to move on now to a section on camp tips because while we've been talking about all these military science things we've also mentioned the importance of being well fed well rested and prepared for the battle but how does one do that one does that by having a, a put together and prepared camp so machiavelli we're gonna we're gonna go through a couple of different sources of information here i'm gonna go over what machiavelli says about it and then we're gonna talk a little bit about some feedback that we've gotten from the bell community on some good tips and tricks because like i didn't think of some of these and they're they're really good to have oh and you definitely learn real fast your first event you're like i'm set i've got my weapons i've got my sleeping bag i got a tent you need so much more stuff you really do and also you're gonna need less stuff than you think about bringing my first event i wanted to bring like half my library because i was convinced i was going to have reading time you, you maybe touch one book maybe if if you're not popular or have responsibilities usually it's like a week-long event i'll end up reading a bit but if it's not that then I'm not gonna touch yeah, it. Yeah, maybe a week-long event where you're gonna have like a down day or something. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. When I but, need my me time. But a weekend event, I mean, bring a book for the car or bring a book for the plane, but don't bring in a book for the event. You're not gonna You're You not don't need a ton it. of books for that. So what Machiavelli recommends, though, is to bring four staples for food. And this is about food specifically, this section. He recommends bringing flour, bacon, lard, and vinegar. Now, we, as modern people, I don't think any of us have eaten just raw flour or lard. Or I, vinegar. I haven't. I, I've actually had vinegar. I've drank I've I had drink balsamic not drink but like have a little a, a little, dash yeah a dash of it um, and then bacon obviously anybody who eats who eats meat has usually had bacon oh yeah but uh, we've kind of translated this into carbs protein fats and something to cleanse your palate. The carbs are important because those are your, your long-term energy things, your, the, the, the parts that are gonna keep it all moving. The carbs are important. And so he says flour, but it can be really any carbs that are gonna work for you, whether that's bread, some other form of grain, crackers. Um, you are burning a lot during this time. So really anything you can pad your stomach with a little bit. Any calories are good. I never turn down free food at an event. That's one of my personal policies, but like carbs are a huge part of it. Noodles are really good 
good, but it does require a lot more prep. There's a lot of prep. So the next thing down, the protein. If you're a meat eater, this comes pretty easily to you. You have, you bring some beef or you bring some jerky was one of the things I brought when I was younger, which is jerky. Jerky's a jerky. classic. Just something to give you protein. But if you're not a meat eater, you still need protein. You're just not going to be getting it from meat. And so uh, we actually looked up some, some ways to be able to get full proteins without being able to eat meat. Because the problem with eating vegetable proteins is that they usually just contain a few amino acids. With the exception of like soy or quinoa, the vegetable kingdom doesn't have a whole lot of complete proteins. It has a lot of amino acids that can combine to make a complete protein. But they, so you're going to have to mix your foods and it's not as hard as it sounds. For instance, you can make a complete protein by mixing nuts and seeds and grains. So this is a peanut butter sandwich. Oh yeah, right, right? there. That's, that's, that's a complete protein right there. Easy to make, easy to transport. You don't have to worry about refrigerating it. It's good for you. I cannot recommend peanut butter high enough. It's so for good for any kind it. of camping thing. It is carbs and fat energy more now, efficiently than like almost anything else. Now let's say you're allergic to nuts. What do you do at that point? Well, the combination of grains and beans has a similar effect. It also creates a complete protein. So if you're thinking about some quesadillas or something along those lines, you're going to be getting a complete protein out of that, which is nice. And then the last one is combining the beans and the nuts. Yeah, the beans and the nuts are seeds. So this can be done in like a salad in the form of mixing your sunflower seeds and chickpeas or something along those lines. But by beans, I mean legumes. So like chickpeas are also a legume. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple different ways of making protein. And again, if you're a vegetarian, you probably know way more about this than yeah, I do. Yeah, we both eat meat. We're sorry. I've tried to be a vegetarian and I'm not good at it. So My fiance hunts. Yeah. Fresh meat is good. Oh, yeah. Especially fresh venison, my man. Fresh bear. Ooh. Oh, it's real good. Oh, yeah. But yeah, protein. Protein is awesome. Protein is delicious, and it will keep you on your feet and fighting and give you that long-term goodness and give your muscles exactly what they're craving at the moment. For the lard, we're just saying fats. And so fats, again, we're not necessarily saying that you need to bring a stick of butter and bow down on that. You will vomit. You will. Fats fats are obviously very good because they give you, again, more energy. And it's also how your brain works. Like fatty tissue is what makes up your brain. So if you're not eating fats and you're burning a bunch of calories, you are lowering the amount of mental power that you can bring to what you're doing. And considering that a lot of what we're talking about is cerebral, you need to make sure you got your fats. It's super important. Absolutely. But how do you get those? Well, you can get them through a lot of, uh, obviously, meat. Yeah, uh, the meat often has a lot of fat. If you're not going after the super lean stuff, you're going to get fat from meat. But let's say you're a vegetarian. There's a lot of great ways to get natural fats too. Avocado is one of the very mm. best ways to do it. You can keep those. They don't need to be stored at a low temperature. Really high in natural fat. Absolutely delicious for the people who like them. I don't. Inter- in- I love them. I'll, I'll take all your avocados. Come day three of a week-long event. Suddenly I, you love them. I love them because I'm fat starved <laughs> and my body's like, I don't care where it comes from. I just need it now. <laughs> Pine nuts are actually another really great source. When I was in the MCC, I actually gained a fair bit of weight because I was eating a lot of pine nuts. You and I had the opposite. It wasn't a problem. I lost 30 pounds. It was amazing. I gained like 15 pounds. (laughs) Now, it was all muscle most of it, but I also just got like a bunch of husky to me. And like I attribute that to just the sheer level of pine nuts I was consuming. There's a lot of fat, those things. And there's another, I think sunflower seeds too. They have a lot of fatty oils. That would make sense, yeah. So really, wherever you can get it from, whatever tastes best to you, what's going to be the most reliable, those are your big food groups that you want to be hitting. Obviously, if you can get fruits, great. Fruits are good for you. They've got the natural sugars. They've usually got some good vitamins to them. You can never have too many vitamins unless you've had too many vitamins. So fruits are absolutely good. Any veggies, never turn down a veggie. With fruits, very careful which fruits you pick. Bananas are great, but only do it if you're going to eat it really fast. Bananas go bad at the drop of a hat. That's true. And bananas can actually 
actually cramp your stomach if you eat them before fighting. But they're really good after fighting for oh, cramps yeah. in your muscles. Oranges are wonderful. They taste so good. There's not a lot to them. So you eat like four of them and you're still hungry. But now you have to pee. And you fought off scurvy, which nobody I've ever known has had. But it's a thing. And you should... <laughs> vitamin no C No scurvy is, is always a win. Any event that you don't have scurvy is a decent event. Man, I've had every decent event. Right? I've never had scurvy. Isn't that a great way to look at the world? It is. Fruits are great. Veggies are great if somebody's making a stir fry. And again, the issues <sighs> with a lot of this, what we're talking about, is that it requires refrigeration. Part it requires of the reason, prep. And it requires prep. So now we come to the point in the chapter where Machiavelli has discussed the differences between the minimum approach to this camping and the maximum approach. Because in his time, he complains about the soldiers needing to have bread and wine. Because of their lifestyles in that time, they just could not seem to function without bread and wine. I don't it's know. It's funny because the Romans and the Greeks drank wine constantly. But I don't know if you've ever tried to supply bread and wine to 20,000 people three times a day, but that's actually really difficult. That's so much bread. It's a lot of bread. It's a lot of processing. It's a lot of people you have to have doing that. There's just a lot of prep that goes into that. Whereas what the Romans did was they issued, that's where this flour, bacon, lard, and vinegar comes from. They just issued the soldiers those things and be like, make your own. So you're going to make your own bread. You're going to use that lard and you're going to mix it into whatever. You're going to have your bacon that you can eat. And then the vinegar is what we're talking about as a palate cleanser, some sort of palate cleanser, something to drink that isn't just water and for whatever reason that seems to help it helps digest i mean mm. the other part of the reason that they had vinegar is a digestive aid that makes sense and the one thing you don't want in the field is gut issues no oh no so the vinegar i mean like if you can stand having a drop of vinegar in your water it's actually really good for you too but any sort of palate cleanser anything that's going to kind of calm your stomach after a long day of fighting and after eating really quickly because you're likely going to is good there one thing to note here, it is okay if you don't want to go to the basic method for Belagarth. Absolutely. And that's where the basic method of just bringing the bare minimums. And by bare minimums, we're talking like saltine crackers, jerky, and some cheese or whatever. Like that bare minimum stuff, you can. And we're not saying that that's a bad way to live. We're not saying that it's the best way to live either. Because there's absolutely the maximum approach to camping as well. Which is what Machiavelli would complain about. But let's face it, we're on vacation Yeah, as we're well. doing this for fun. We're not hiking the Alps. Exactly. So for something like the maximum camping, for those of us in the West, we've got a really good example of Sarka's Kitchen. Here in the East, they've got Lady Fairy. She actually has like a cart. That yeah, she I've seen some of She's come to Chaos Wars. Yeah, she did. She did. I adore Lady Fairy. Those sandwiches she makes are amazing. And I love what Sarka makes too, because everything Sarka makes is like a new handmade meal. And so these are the maximum style of camping. Well, actually, when I was talking to my wife about this, she was saying that people who come in their campers are doing the maximum style of camping. But when we're talking about food, having a kitchen that you're going to is really the creme de la creme. Mm-hmm. And these are completely legitimate things to do. If you don't like cooking, you're not going to enjoy cooking outdoors. Right. It's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. You're going to hate it. <laughs> so it is okay to go to the people who enjoy cooking and do this with them. And it's no sin to say that you don't like Dinty More Stew. I mean, I like Dinty More Stew, but it's no sin to say that you don't like it. Yeah, but if you do, if you go to one of these camps, you treat these people like the gods and goddesses they are. The army marches on its stomach, and they are making the army march. So if you're going to Sarka's kitchen or Lady Fairy's kitchen, you better be all smiles. You better be all pleases and thank yous. And if they need something done, it's a you good get thing up to and help out. Do it. Yeah. Absolutely. And again, there's benefits and there's drawbacks to each of these ways. If you're doing the minimum style, like we had said, obviously there's very little prep. 
You run into your camp, you eat in about five minutes, you just shovel your nuts and jerky and saltines down your throat, wash it down with some Gatorade, and you're good to go again. You can go out and do whatever you need to do. This is a short-term thing, though. It gets exhausting. It does get exhausting. Now, if you're doing the kitchen method, like a Lady Fairy or a Sarka, you're going to get far better food out of it, but it is often far more filling, which is going to slow you down more, and it takes longer to get because it needs to be prepared, it needs to be cooked, and there's often a line of people who are waiting for the exact same thing that you are. And it takes more manpower to get done. Absolutely. Like, Gulf Camp does a kitchen at Chaos Wars every year. Mm-hmm. And it's great, and it's amazing, and people love doing it, but you are now responsible for feeding 20 hungry people. That's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work, too. Because, again, after every single meal, those utensils and dishes and prep things need to be washed. Everything needs to be prepped again. Got to constantly be checking to make sure that things that need to be refrigerated are refrigerated. So I have absolutely benefited from Lady Fairy and from Sarka. I adore the idea of having delicious food that I can just go up and get. That being said, I've done the other way as well. And whatever works best for you, whatever works best for your budget too. Oh yeah. You know, the issue with going to somebody who's cooking for you is you're going to have to pay more for it. Now you get your bang for your buck, but if you're coming in with pennies to your name, that's not going to be as good of a thing. So that's what the rest of that prep stuff was for. If you're coming in and you can't afford one of those kitchens, make sure that you've got these food groups covered. Carbs, fats, proteins. Say it with me now. Carbs, fats, and proteins. Thank you now. Because people good. will go in being like, carbs, I want some protein. It'll be fine. You forget the fats. You need your fats. <laughs> oh, boy. Or somebody will go in and be like, yeah, I'll be fine not bringing a bunch of protein. And they're very, very wrong. Suddenly go hunting from camp to camp for scrap. While you should absolutely feed that person because a hungry person is a hungry person. You don't ever want to be that person. No, it's not fun. I want to know where my dinner's coming from personally. I like to plan for it. Mm -hmm. I'm old. I'm old now, though. Oh, yeah. So the next thing that he talks about when he's talking about diet isn't actually something that he advises for. It's advising against. And he advises against alcohol. And there's some good reasons for this. It causes disorder. What we know now, it causes dehydration as well. What's fun is alcohol in his day was a really good way to make sure you got clean water. That too, yeah. But it is also a very mixed alcohol. It is... The Greeks, for example, they'll talk about how much the Greeks drank, but they were mixing their wine with almost two to one amounts water. Right. So it's a glass of wine and two glasses of water as opposed to... Or actually a third of a glass of wine and two-thirds of a glass of water, as opposed to just drinking alcohol straight down. And the early beers that we talk about, like when we talk about how people exclusively drank beer in some areas because it was the only water they could find, we're talking like less than 1%. Yeah, very low percentile beers. And so vinegar does the same thing, though, which is why Machiavelli is the one pushing for the idea of using vinegar because it's also clean. God, it sounds so gross to do that. Actually, it's not bad. Have you ever had like an apple vinegar? Not as my only source of liquids. But I mean, like, just mix it in with some water. Like, I guess it's not that bad. And if you have nothing else to drink, it's not that bad. I'll give you that. Now, that being said, this particular thing comes with a caveat because we understand that there is a party culture in Belagarth and in Dagrahir and in the SEA and in just about any other place where humans congregate, there is going to be partying that happens. Yeah, you're here at a festival. That being said, it's a good idea to be responsible for yourself about that partying. If you know that there's going to be one night you really just want to cut loose and have a good time, make sure that you don't have any fighting commitments early yeah, in the day. Don't next. do that the night before your big trial. Yeah. That's, do it the uh, night after your big trial. That's a good idea right there. So yeah, just being able to plan that and planning for rest days after a particularly good party day is a good idea because you want to make sure that you got your fluids up. You want to make sure that you're not dehydrated. 
I think sometimes yeah. people worry that they have to go hard every night. Well, it's, if, it's often that the only time that people get to let their hair down. Yeah, but like even if you're not actively partying yourself, a lot of people are like, oh, I have to because otherwise what am I going to do? Right. But I find in a lot of cases, even on my low, calm night, I can just wander around and say hi to people. And even if I'm not living up the high life, I can still get time to like be relaxed and be social. Sure. And it, it's not like I have to go be a pariah if I am not partying absolutely and i go to bed at like 10 so i do anyways yeah no i've gotten into that habit too i've been going to bed a lot earlier we, we're getting old yeah part of the issue yeah i'm 31 i am not old but in Bellagarth, my old. knees are kind of old yeah no ath- i mean athletes age quicker than anybody else anybody who does a physical form of wargaming is going to age quicker than their peers because we're using our bodies more aggressively that just makes sense but we digress These are the ideas. Like we said, we know that expecting everybody to abstain from the use of alcohol or from partying is a little extreme. But doing so responsibly and doing so on smart times that where it's not going to be a detriment to you is the advice that I would give. Anything else on... on No, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. It's use self-control. Exactly. Yeah, use self-control. That's all of our ideas for what you should be consuming food and drink wise while you're at an event obviously people are going to mix in their favorite things into wherever that goes but that's kind of the baseline of what you need the next thing when it comes to having a good time with camp is knowing the area and i mean literally knowing the area we're spoiled in this day and age because we can get on google maps and i absolutely recommend that the week before you go to a new event site you get on google maps and there's three things you need to know the location of the hospital the grocery store and the nearest fast food joint. Because let's face it, you're going to have one meal that you didn't plan correctly and you're going to need to get it quickly. And you just need those carbs and fats and proteins. Exactly. (laughs) So those are the three things that you should really just, because the hospital, obviously if anything goes wrong, if anybody needs to go to the hospital, it's a big deal. So you want to know where it's at so that that's not a consideration at the time. Grocery store, everything you don't bring with you, you're going to be getting from a grocery store. So knowing where the nearest one is, is going to save you some time and like going around. And then the fast food joint like snow bunnies were at the old chaos wars site at haley idaho mm-hmm. i was gonna say if you're an event coordinator and you're expecting a big number of people especially on a relatively small town like as we mentioned there haley is not a large no place it's a small town in idaho i'm pretty sure our event was larger than the town yeah it was days. a few hundred people we think and there mm-hmm. was like one drive through there and one grocery store and we let people know hey we're bringing in 400 people and that fast food joint prepped for us. Oh, they brought in like all their relatives from all around the country and were like, this is the week we need you. We're going to make more than we make the rest of the year this week. They <laughs> apparently got really sad when we had to leave that site. Sure. But <laughs> um, everybody in that town, I'm sure, was sad when we left that site. In the same way we were saying treat Sarka or anyone as the gods and goddesses that they are. Anyone in the town who you and you're probably kind of stinky... Mm-hmm. and your dirty garb mm-hmm. goes into their place, you treat them like the gods they are. Absolutely. Yeah, you're going into town, you're on your best behavior, because if the constabulary in that area don't want you there, you don't get to have your event anymore. So being on a good terms with the town people is a good idea. Absolutely. Same thing goes for a 40k event. You're going to a tournament someplace. It's not a place to go and act the fool. It's not a place to go and get yourself kicked out of the town if you want to go back. If you don't ever want to go back, that's another thing entirely. My fiance had a story about when she lived in Portland, a Magic the Gathering tournament happened next door to the subway she was working at, Mm. and they were understaffed, so it was just her. Oh, Lord. And they apparently, when they realized that, tipped really really well so well, that's good nice. job those guys because yeah. they're eventually like we don't care we just need whatever you have just give us calories <laughs> 
that's what it becomes. Like we said, anybody who provides you food, you need to treat them real well. So yeah, knowing the area, get on your Google Maps and just check those things out. Again, fast food joint, grocery store, and a hospital. Those are the most important things to know where they are at. Um, uh, even on a just in the event site, a lot of events these days will have an overhead view of whatever park that they're in, whatever right. campsite that they're in, right, right, right. with stuff marked on there. So know where Troll is, or at yep. least have an idea so it's easier to find. Know where the you know the head camp area, know where the fighting field is. Whatever pavilion they're going to be using for announcements or awards, where Feast is going to be. Yeah, these are all good ideas. Scouts yeah. and spies make life easier. They That's do. 90% of what we've learned here. The next thing is to have locals that are on your side as well, knowing people in the area who can tell you the ground. And by ground, I mean as you're pounding your stakes in, are you going to need the heel of your foot or are you going to need a sledgehammer? Because the rules for pounding in stakes in Pennsylvania and Montana are very different. Heck, the rules in Montana in May or in October are very different. Are wildly different. So knowing the locals, being able to get that kind of information, knowing what different temperatures are going to be possible, the locals are going to be able to tell you what to kind of expect that time of year, what kind of weather to expect, what kind of temperatures to expect. Those are important things to know. You don't want to be bringing a sleeping bag that's certified down to negative 50 if it's never going to drop below 50 above. Like, that's, that's just a little extreme. I've done it. You melt. You, you wake up outside of the sleeping bag, suddenly kind of cold, but it's worse inside. Right. And then you're soggy. And it's just not good. It's unpleasant. So this kind of information is also very useful for making sure that you have a good time. And then the last thing he mentions is using Scout. And by what he's saying in this particular case, I take to mean uh, one of the things we do, and then uh, several units I've been in have done, is you send at least one person to sit at the gate before an event opens. So let's say it opens at like 10. You have somebody who's sitting there at like 9. And so when the gate opens, they're able to go and secure a site that works for your unit. Does your unit have people who are going to need to be close to the restrooms? You want to make sure you get a campsite close to the restrooms. If you got 40 people coming... You make want to sure make, you have a place. You want to have a place where you can put them all together and you don't have to scatter them out throughout. So having a scout, which is to say having somebody who goes to the site ahead of the rest of the group, because let's face it, a lot of times it's on a day where people are getting off of work or they're traveling from the airport or there's 10,000 other travel issues that can happen. But having somebody who's there who can go and secure it is a, a real, it gives you peace of mind, mm -hmm. a real good peace of mind. And so it's worth doing making sure that you have a scout there. That's what Machiavelli kind of had to say about camp tips, but I thought this would actually be a really good time to talk about a little bit more camp tips. What do you say about camp yeah. tips? You being oh, me. all of you. Our listeners, a few of them gave us some feedback. My apprentice Kaji said that a camp should be tidy and clean, that you should participate in group activities. And what this is to say is that people are doing things like you're, you're coming together for like a camp story session or or something. Something as a group that's fun. And then We throw also... a pub night every chaos yeah, for us. Pub and it's night. always great. Like today you come to our camp and hang out or even group meals i mean that's yeah, something group that meals are so important you're constantly doing the the group meals over there which is good and then the last thing he says is group work that's also important when people are putting up tents or when people are setting up for whatever the case might be that you're participating that you're doing whatever you can again if you're a person of slight build or that has a spine issue like myself right now nobody is expecting you to pick up a heavy picnic table more hands means less work though exactly but if you can be over there to help hold something that somebody else is working on it can help out so oh, yeah figuring out where to contribute is very important bear says to always have a fire and i kind of agree with that always having a fire always having a place of warmth always having some place that you can cook assuming conditions allow for it we live in a place that burns very easily 
That's a good point. There's the year that the smoke settled in and we had Mordor War of the Gate. That was not a good year for fire. No, we didn't want to contribute to the smoke that was in the area. Like, again, the fires in Western Montana can get fairly severe. So, yes, addendum, if the conditions allow for a fire, always have a fire. It gives a central place for people to gather. Like I said, it's a place to cook, a place to just stare at. It's like a TV that smells good. Pretty sweet. Well, and one other addendum on this one. I always sound kind of mean when I say this because I grew up learning how to make fires. If you don't know how to make a fire, you will not figure it out on your own. Look it up first. Read the basic information. If you don't have a fire starter in your crew, then you're the person that needs to look up this information. But actually learn it, because like... I don't mean to be mean to these people. I don't even remember who they were. But it was, they got some of that instant fire starter that you can get outside of any store in Montana or Idaho or Utah in the summer. Right. That's instant fire starter. And they were like, oh, okay. And they just put it on top of a big old log and tried to light it on fire and couldn't figure out what was going on. That's not how fire works. It's not. And that's okay. If you live in the city, this is something that has not necessarily come up for you. If you've never had to light a fire, it's no shame of yours as to why you don't know how to, yeah. But if you do it wrong, and then someone has to come fix it for you, it's really embarrassing. That too. Even if they are nice. And if you're really cold, or you're really hungry... It's really frustrating. It's very frustrating. So making sure you know what you're doing when it comes to fire is a good idea. Always have one. If you have one, make sure that it's somebody's job to maintain it. Somebody needs to be sitting there watching that fire to make sure that it doesn't burn the forest down. Burn the forest down or go out. Either way is really bad. Too much fire or too little. It defeats the purpose of having <laughs> it. Yeah. That's good advice from Bear. Limfowl says to bring water and then to bring some more water. Always bring more water than you need, but also he says to bring either wet naps or baby wipes, depending on what you call them, for hygiene purposes. This is something that's often very overlooked. By the end of a weekend event, especially a week event, there is a sheer dichotomy between the people who practice hygiene and the people who do not. It doesn't matter if it's warm or cold, you will be sweaty. And sweat makes all the dirt stick, and it's the salt, and you smell bad. And you're exercising, so you're producing more hormones than usual. And if you can shower and get rid of it, great. But if you can't, or even just, you know, dirt gets on you, you're out camping, or whatever you're eating. Wet naps, some kind of cleanliness thing, is just absolutely essential. Yeah, it makes it so much easier to keep clean out there. Like we said, if there are showers on site, use them. Oh my god, yeah. But if there's not showers on site, or even if there are, this makes for a really good tool, a short-range tool to be like, ah, no, I gotta wipe this off real quick, or I need to wipe down real quick while I'm changing garb because I got super sweaty and I don't want to be super sweaty in my new garb. It's a good idea. Hygiene is always a good idea. Also, with the showers, a lot of people who haven't been to events much are like, do you want to take a shower before you leave? And they're like, no, I'll be fine. I'll take a shower when I get home. That part of your brain is lying, and you should not trust them. And everybody else in the car is not going to like you. You will notice it for, I'm going to say eight hours, because that's how long a lot of my car drives are for your events. It's, it's but like, like minimum for us, yeah. You will be in that car, a very small area of space for a long time. Be good to your car mates. Be good to yourself. That's, yeah. Yeah. Be good to your car, because that smell stays. And then while you're at the event, be good to your camp, because on this hygiene thing, that's also the spread of disease. Good hygiene is how we cut down on the spread. And we're not talking like really serious diseases, just colds and like flu stuff. But I can't think of a single event that I've come back from where there wasn't some form of event plague that began. That was just this synthesis of bugs that came from different parts of the country. And this could be really cut down upon if proper hygiene would be practiced. Anytime you get to a crowd, I mean, just look at a school when one kid comes with a flu 
flu. Ugh. It goes everywhere. With events, you're not just getting, you know, the people and, like, the kids in a two-mile radius. You're getting people, sometimes from across the country, whatever strain of the cough they have, you probably have no immunity to it. Exactly. This actually touches on a point that nobody else brought up, but I think is a good thing to say right now. If you are sick, please do not come to the event. Oh, yeah. I don't care if it is your favorite event, if it's an event you try to make every single year. If you're the person who's coming and getting me sick, I do not care what your excuse is. You can plan your knighthood for some time else. Do not get me sick. It's also just not very fun to be sick out in the woods while everyone else is having fun. That's horrible. And one of the ways to cut down on this, actually Mutton had some advice as to how to cut down on the spread, and it's to have a proper hand-washing station. Now this doesn't need to say that we have like a proper sink and all that sort of thing, but just some place with either running water or Purell or wipes or something that is, this is the place where you go to get clean, especially near a kitchen or any place where people are going to be touching things with their hands and mouths. A hand-washing station is always a good idea. And again, even just some Purell in your pouch can work for this. If you've ever worked in a kitchen, you know that the rules for hand washing and staying clean is so important because people are going to put that stuff in their face. In their face. That is not different if you're out in the woods. Nope. I recognize that you can't keep professional kitchen level clean, but you can mitigate the damage. And just remember, again, that every one of these steps, these hygiene steps, is just another way to try to make it better. Because if somebody comes in and they've got something they don't know about and they're in contact with people, it's going to spread. That's just the way disease works. But if we're doing this proper hand washing and using Purell or some other purifying agent to make sure our hands are clean, and then also making sure that we're practicing the proper hygiene on ourselves with either bathing or using the wet naps to keep all the gunk off of us, we can have a lot better time at the event, I think. Mm -hmm. and maybe, again, maybe this is me getting old and being like, you darn kid. Wash your hands. Why the, I can't believe you didn't. But no, seriously, wash your hands it's big in the news right now just wash your hands it's important and then the last oh no not the last piece i got two more pieces of advice for us grizz from here in stygia recommends that you set up your camp before you begin partying oh yeah that's very self-explanatory make sure everything that you need is going to by the way this is everything not just oh i got my tent set up i'll be good no you make sure that your cot is set up you make sure that your bedroll is put onto it you gotta make sure that it's good to go make sure your sleeping bag is rolled out make sure you know where whatever you're sleeping in is because you're coming in if you're going to be doing any sort of party and you're going to go out and have a good time you're going to come in it's going to be dark so if it's not set up it's not going to be set up in the dark either it's just going to be haphazard it's not a good thing and if you have to have anything the next morning have that at least partially set up yeah because when you get up the next morning you're not going to want to start from scratch nope nope so i think that's pretty good advice from grizz there and then the last piece of advice we have is from Orion, and he recommends combining your camps to cut down on transit and gear. And this isn't to say that if you've got a fully functional, like if your unit is 50 strong and you're all going to an event, you're probably set. You probably are right. But in terms of like when, when all Stygians are going to an event, there's a lot of times that we are going to get there and we're not going to have complete units to camp with. At this time, we make Stygia camp, which is to say that we all come together and we share what we have. You usually don't have like a large, complicated kitchen or anything like that like that but we share our space we share our gear and it just makes it a lot easier also makes it safer yeah we're a community not just safer of like oh you're gonna be attacked in your sleep but like no, but in like we were talking about the mcc i got the fear of god put into me when they were talking about choking apparently choking kills a lot of people when camping because your natural impulse when you're choking is to move away from other people because i'm making funny 
noises. Right, because you feel like you're embarrassed because something's going wrong. It's not until you're away from other people and can't breathe that you realize the error of your actions. So this whole idea of coming together, what I mean is safe. I'm not thinking that a puma is going to come out and grab you. It's just a matter of like injury, sickness, all that good stuff. We, We do better together. On these same lines, if someone from your realm is coming to an event, especially if they're new, but really just in general, and they don't have anywhere to go. If I go out east, I don't have a huge support group out there. Right, right, right. So I'm going to get a hold of you or Mr. Dark. Apparently I know Dark Angels. But I'm going to get a hold of someone that I have met before and be like, hey... You don't have to really look after me, but can I just set up my camp near yours? And Thumbs isn't even a noob, but he'd be in an area where he virtually would be a noob, and hes that's a very sensible thing to do. I mean, I did it when I went out there. I had unit mates to stay with, but mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the idea is the same. I know when they come out this way, they often are hitting us up and saying, hey, mind if we camp with you? Or yeah, like it's, just, smart. Smart. it's just more relaxing to be near known entities. Yeah. Absolutely. And then I've got a little bit to add to this as well. And this is mostly in gear. When you're packing for it, I always say you want to have these things. And this is the bare minimum, excluding food. But you want to have these things in addition to anything else you might bring. You want a knife, a small knife. I'm not talking like a buoy knife or anything like that, but just this a small a knife, knife. For, for dealing with things in around the campsite. Cutting twigs, cutting rope, cutting food, opening cutting packages. twine, opening packages. A knife is very useful. In that same token, an axe or a large chopping object, a similar thing like a, a machete, is a good idea because you will have pieces of wood, if you've got your fire going, like Bear recommended, that you're going to need to break up. So something to break up that wood is a good idea that isn't your knife because trying to like whittle at a log... It doesn't work. <laughs> It doesn't work that great. So a knife and an axe, because they're for two separate purposes. Rope, you can never have enough rope. You've seen Boondock Saints. You know that you could always use more rope. And every camp I've been in, we never, ever have enough rope. So rope is always a good idea. On that same idea, tarps, because the weather can always shift. And giving yourself more shelter, something between you and the wet is always a good idea. So tarps are good. Ground separation is a big one for me too. Whether this is a heat pad between you and the ground, a cot or an air mattress, something to separate you from the ground. And no, I do not mean cotton sheets or blankets. It's not enough. The cold will seep through it. I don't care where you are. I don't care if you're in the south. And the it's ground the is colder than you in the middle of the night. It is. And it'll seep it out of you and you're going to wake up stiff and sore, if not hypothermic. So making sure that there's something between you and the ground is important. Well, and not just that. We like to imagine the ground as, oh, it's this flat thing. Right. It never is. Even on the flattest field, once you lay down, you'll notice where that rock is or where that bump is or just... Find every twig. And especially in your sleep, you will just dig your thigh bone into it. Mm-hmm. Just don't do that. Just don't do just, it. Just set up so you don't have to worry about yep. it. That's the separation from the ground. It can save you a lot of heartache. And the last thing I recommend is to make sure that you have proper sleeping gear. Again, if you're going to a place where it's not going to drop below 50 degrees, don't bring a sub-zero bag. You're going to sweat to death. On that same idea, if you're going to a place where it could possibly snow, like Thawbrawl, please bring proper sleeping gear so that you don't freeze to death in your sleep. That would be a very unfortunate thing to wake up to. I will say, always bring at least one more good blanket than you think you need. Yep. Even if it's not just for you even if somebody else when your buddies is like man i was really cold last night you can be like oh i got an extra blanket here you go yeah that's just being a good buddy you always want to be a good buddy worst case scenario the ground underneath you is a little bit softer absolutely there's nothing wrong with that oh yeah nothing wrong there Another thing that you had brought up, Thumbs, is the idea of bringing a larger tent as a group tent, like a group gathering area. 
with all of these things, especially as we talked about, you might not bring everything, but if someone brings the rope and another person brings the axe, if you have a group area tent one, it's a good, easy place to congregate if you need. Yep, yep. And if, oh, I know, this is a Gelf thing, go drop it off at the Gelf group tent. Yep. And one of us will figure out where it goes. And it's just easier than having to be like, uh, okay, Grizz, I need to go to your tent to get the axe, and then I need to go to my tent to get the knife. And I know the rope was in either Sins or Naga's But I don't tent. know where they are right, right. now. And I can't just go in their tent because rude. Rude. Yeah, uh, having a group tent where you store the group gear is a really good idea. And then you'd already talked about adopting noobs. That was the other thing I had on this list. But you had talked about if you've got somebody from your realm who's going who's never been to an event or if somebody is coming from across the country who's never been into an event on your part of the country, it's no harm to adopt them into your camp. At Chaos Wars, the Gulf just expect me at this point to set up a Stygia camp at the end. Because there's always those one or two people that for whatever reason don't have a place to be. Yeah. And so right next to us, it's safe and they tend to be good people. And then you can participate in the fun and activities that are going on in the larger camp. Oh, yeah. It's not a bad thing at all. Well, do you have anything else in terms of camp tips there, Thumbs? No, I think that's pretty much it. I was excited we were going to do this one because a lot of media coming out about foam fighting is mostly about the fighting side. For understandable, it's exciting reasons. Oh, it's very, very compelling, yeah. And I really wish, I mean, I don't know if I would have listened, but I really wish that I would have had more information like this when I was starting off. Me too. I hope this has been useful to y'all. I know I wish I would have had this information when I was younger. We're going to try to find Sorsha's packing list because I think that would be a really good thing to throw up there for the listeners. But if there's nothing else to talk about in terms of like the meat and potatoes, I think it's about time for us to move on to the Battle of Trenton. Battle of Trenton, which was a battle in the Revolutionary War that took place in 1776. We do want to say before we start this, this is a pretty straightforward battle. This is a war that just growing up in America, we have learned quite a bit about. Mm -hmm. This is not an area that either one of us is particularly experienced in. I've always meant to go back and do a more thorough study of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War in American history was always my focus. But yeah, I mean, it got some fascinating points and I felt like this battle really exemplifies some of the points that were made during the ambush section that we were talking about. Well, unfortunately, I don't think this era of battle was sold very well no, as like an interesting thing because we think of it as this side lines up and this side lines up and then they just point muskets at each other and fire until one side falls. And, there, sometimes and there's were, definitely yeah. that. But we were also starting to develop a much less this army versus this army walks onto a field and fights. So there's so much more to this era. Especially since when you're talking about a lot of the veterans that were in the Continental Army, most of them were veterans of the French Indian Wars. So they had fought against guerrillas and they had fought guerrilla campaigns. And so this idea of running an insurgency wasn't completely foreign to them. It wasn't like they were coming up with this concept on their own. They'd already been taught to do it by the British against the French and Indians. So it was actually, the British kind of shot themselves in the foot by having so many experienced people be in the Continental Army that were also very angry with them. Mm Mm-hmm. Because again, for everybody who doesn't come from America, the American Revolution really was about money and it was about taxation without representation. That was the big sticking point. Now, obviously there were other issues too. There was the lodging issue where soldiers could come in and basically steal whatever they 
wanted, whether it was housing or food, like that was a huge issue. And then there were the taxes that were put on everything, sugar, stamps, and they just became too much. And these were to pay for these wars that had taken place previously. But the colonists were like, we were fighting to preserve your monetary. And now we're paying for it. And now we're paying for it. And so it was like a double taxation thing for them and they just weren't having it. One thing I do want to say real quick here, this war, I mean, the Revolutionary War is the war that started the United States, means that it means a whole lot to our country in a way that a lot of battles might not. Sure. Uh, This battle to save Rome doesn't inspire exactly the same emotions that what we were raised as like the battle to found our country. Sure. There will be some places here where we're going to be like, America did not make a good choice here. (laughs) And... There's all sorts of debates to be had about the world, but we're not being like America was dumb. Like we would with anybody else. We're just yeah. we're just analyzing a battle and we're trying to do so while acknowledging that yes, we're both Americans, but we're gonna try to do this without as much of the super patriotism. We're gonna as try possible. not to take sides. Yeah. Much like I mean, like we tried not to in the Civil War as best as we could too, but like obviously we have our biases, we're only human, but we're gonna try to present this in a way that is objective. Mm-hmm. Is the idea. So as Thumb said, the Battle of Trenton took place in December of 1776 on the 26th. So that's the day after Christmas for anybody who follows that particular holiday. The sides at play here were the Continental Army versus the Hessian Auxiliary Forces. So right off the bat, we need to address early on, and actually all throughout the Revolutionary War, the British heavily relied on auxiliaries. They just did not have the manpower in this one place to do everything that they needed to do. And so in most places where they just needed a garrison or just needed to protect a fort or something like that, they would leave an auxiliary guard to basically guard their flank. Usually the the Hessians. Hessians And the Hessians were German mercenaries. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting in a way we were a proxy two because mm-hmm. we got so much funding from not just france spain tossed in the dutch netherlands tossed in mm-hmm. they tossed us a lot of generals france is the one that gave the most france is the one that gave really yeah. yeah really gets the reputation mm-hmm. but in a lot of ways the revolutionary war despite whatever huge altering consequences it had was basically a border war of or a proxy war of britain versus france or britain versus the rest of europe by proxy uh, yeah because i mean the british empire is the biggest empire in the world at this point all the others are surviving but this behemoth is right next to them and makes really angry noises just constantly. And France is their main rival. We went to them and we're like, hey, we could use some help. And they're like, sure. That would annoy the British. Oui, oui. They were very gung-ho for it. So again, it's when we th- we're talking about the Revolutionary War, it wasn't just the colonists who were rebelling. They absolutely had help from outside in terms of like getting arms or getting training. I know that Lafayette was huge in getting the army trained up to the proper specs, but that was after where we're at right now. Unfortunately, in the winter of 1776, things looked really, really bleak for the Continental Army. We're talking mass desertions all over the place. Even the officers themselves were thinking it was over. Washington, Washington yeah, had uh, written a letter to i think it was his cousin cousin in virginia yep that's what was it i think the game is up the quote was i think yeah i think the game is up that's the exact quote so even washington this guy who we look up to as a hero of our nation at this point was like oh i don't know because for the whole first part of the war they had gotten licked and they had gotten licked good New York was not a good place to be fighting. The campaigns there had gone very poorly and the Continental Army had been forced to fall back to their position in Pennsylvania. We think of Washington today as this almost godlike general. Well, sure, he's, he's the founder of our nation. Got all the mythical associated. This is where he starts to get that. This is the turning point for him. Where he kind of becomes more than a man. Where the legend becomes begins to take off. Because, yeah, up until this point, they're trying to get troops and retain them in the Continental Army 
was a real issue. Most people did not think that they could win against the British. No which, one did. I mean, the British was huge. They had a massive empire to draw from. It wasn't, <laughs> they were definitely the underdogs. We had a few hundred thousand people. When we talk about numbers, last week's battle, 70,000 people died. Right. We lost, we being America, the United States, I'm sorry, lost about 6,000 to 7,000 people in the battle. And then like another 18,000 people from sickness, weather, whatever, across the entire war. Yep. Not just this one fight, across the entire war, that side lost a third of what the Romans lost at the Battle of Cannae. And we're also looking again, we're talking about army sizes, army tactics, the position that they're in, and also the tech. Part of the reason that there weren't as many fatalities during the Civil War due to like a battlefield injury is because a smoothbore busket does not do the same thing to a body that rifling does. It doesn't go nearly as fast. The aim is terrible. And putting that spin on the bullet literally lets it cut. Like the energy that's coming off if you have a, a moment or two and you're near youtube they've got some demos i can't remember what site they're on but you can see somebody firing into surgical gel and this gel has the same texture the same toughness as human flesh and they fire a smoothbore musket into it and you can see that little pellet just smack into it just it's like hitting it with a hammer it is and, it, and like it splatters outward and everything but the damage is all surface it doesn't penetrate that deeply but when a bullet has that spin on it when it's got the rifling in the barrel and it can go in like that it actually makes this spiral of a tear as it'd be it like a power drill body. yeah i mean literally like just a power drill that is free going and moving at about 200 miles <laughs> you know way 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 fast yeah it's horrifying so again when we're dealing with the technology at this time we're not dealing with the lethality that we are in the civil war because mm -hmm. in this in the american civil war that's when you start to see rifling and that's when you start to see horrific casualties but not only because the aim is better but because the tech is just so much more destructive to the human body. Yeah, we talked in our Civil War episode about how that's where they realized they couldn't use the style of battle anymore. This is when that style of battle still worked. Yes, yes. This was still very much the same idea as what Napoleon was using, the same ideas that de Sachs had been promoting, the same ideas that Frederick the Great had been promoting. This is the era that they are all very useful in. But in terms of the numbers in this actual battle, the Continentals had 2,400 troops, at the actual Battle of Trenton, and they had 18 guns that managed to make it there. Whereas the Hessians were caught with only 1,500 troops and mm -hmm. six guns. And by guns, I mean large artillery pieces. Cannons. Cannons. I'm just going to talk about the casualties real quick because up front, because I think this is rather incredible and kind of speaks to the genius of this maneuver. The Continentals are listed as only having two dead, and those two died of exposure on the way to the battle. Now, after the battle, there were likely far more that died from injuries or from sickness or from exposure. From, exposure was a big one. It was a big killer during the Revolutionary War. But during this battle, only two died and they were from exposure and then only five were wounded. But on the Hessian side, 22 were killed, 83 wounded, and between 800 and 900 of them were captured outright and taken prisoner. And Those that, numbers are insane. That's a huge capture right there. That is almost any battle in history to take out 10 times more mm -hmm. than what you're losing and then capture two thirds, two thirds, two of the thirds of the army. army. That's like there's a reason Washington was a legend after this. And they wanted to make him king and he very politely refused. But no. And this is one of the because, again, you look at these numbers and you're like, well, that wasn't that big of a battle. But like we were talking about before, the biggest issue here was the morale. Continental Army didn't have it. But after this battle, morale skyrocketed because suddenly they were like, look at Washington, look what he accomplished. And because when we actually talk about what he accomplished, it's, it's fairly incredible. And what it did was it made a lot of people 
people want to re-enlist, and it made a lot of people want to join up in the first place. So while this battle, in terms of the overall war, wasn't that consequential, in terms of the morale for the Continental Army, and the actual recruitment of people for the future battles, the Battle of Trenton was actually very, very, very influential. But the reason we're talking about it right now is for one really big reason. Now, do you remember when we were talking about preparing for the inevitable, we discussed the importance of having scouts and pickets, which is to say patrols and just people who are looking on your outskirts. Oh, yeah. The Hessians didn't have them. So a little bit of background on that. Washington had a massive spy network. It was one of the most effective things that he did throughout the war was maintain and utilize a very effective spy network. And in Trenton, he had somebody posing as a Tory butcher and bartender named John Honeyman. Now, John Honeyman had served in previous campaigns under Redcoat generals as a Tory. He was well-trusted, well-liked, and so he got really close to the officers and the men. And as obviously as a bartender, he was kind of a confidant for Yeah, people. it wasn't a hard sell here. And so his job was to gather intel on the Hessians and send it to Washington, and also to convince the Hessians to do things that were contrary to their best interests. So in this particular case, before the battle was fought, he actually got himself quote-unquote caught by the Continentals so that he could report to Washington. But before this, he'd been filling the Hessians' heads with like, oh no, of course he's not going to cross the Delaware. That'd be crazy. In the middle of winter? No, no. Don't even worry about putting up pickets. Don't even worry about the scouts. It's fine. It's fine. You'll be all right. In some level of their defense, it's legitimately crazy. It is legitimately crazy, but because they didn't prepare for it, obviously look what happened. Keep um, at least one eye towards legitimately crazy. But when we're talking about this, you also need to understand who the Hessian command was. And they were under the command of somebody named Johann Rall. Now, Rall is attributed to being loud and not very well acquainted with the English language. So in the English army, he did not do well. He was not well liked. Several times he asked for reinforcements on this position and his superiors in Princeton said, we don't think so. That was for two parts. On one thing, they kind of disdained the guy and didn't care for him. On the other side, at this point, they had been kicking the bejesus out of the colonists. They really didn't think they were that much of a threat. Especially after their performance in New York, they really didn't think they had much to fear. And they turned out to be really, really wrong. Even the Hessians didn't like this guy. He was not well liked in his own troops. They found him too liking of comfort and too unwilling to do work. That's a really bad way to sell. It is. So his superiors, they did not like him. Lead from the front doesn't always mean like I should be, you know, a tip of the phalanx. Right. But be seen doing stuff, be seen being there as well. Well, like we talked about last time, it is important for a captain to not just be well liked, but also to be respected. And in this case, he was uh, neither. He was neither. And he didn't really seem to do much about that. Like we had talked about before the show, his engineers came to him and said, Sir, we're in a very vulnerable position. We recommend making a redoubt here. We recommend constructing fortifications, trench works here. And what he told his engineers were that it would be unnecessary, that those preparations were unnecessary. This was actually a problem across the world, especially the European Western style of combat is when you could just buy leadership, when you could buy officer rank. You're getting a lot of people who have a lot of money, but not a whole lot of charm or respect. Or a lot of or sense training as or to how to do what to do, yeah. To lead your men. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work. It does. I mean, again, it, there were some real standouts during this war on the British side. Cornwallis is, is well touted as one of the most brilliant tacticians that this world has ever seen. He fought in so many campaigns and did very, very well up until right at the end. So not everybody on the British side was a complete idiot. Oh, absolutely. But that I mean, they said, were the greatest empire in the world at the time for a reason. 
But like you said, this aristocratic tradition meant that people could buy the rank who didn't necessarily deserve it. And that was an issue. You can see that here. So the other thing is that, like we had talked about, morale was super low in the Continental Army. A bunch of these deserters were picked up by Rawls, either people associated with Rawl or by his section in particular, and they straight up told him that Washington was stockpiling supplies and that it looked like he was going to cross the Delaware. And he ignored it. He said, there's no way, there's absolutely no way that Washington is going to try That's for this. That's impossible. So, on the night, the 25th of December, Washington crosses the Delaware. This is one of the most infamous moments in U.S. history. We've got paintings about it and all that. When we were talking about Washington, the moment, you know, and him having this kind of almost cult-like figure for us, the moment I said his name, the first thing that pops in my head is Washington crosses the Delaware, the very famous painting. It's iconic, yeah. I I see him in that Captain Morgan pose that Mm. he is in that... (laughs) That nobody in their right mind would be in when crossing an icy river. No, that would be terrible. (laughs) No, he was huddled up, I bet you. Oh, yeah. No, 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 yeah. Everyone was huddled up. It was cold. So obviously we know it works. Right. But so game-changing. Absolutely. Yeah, and so this crossing of the Delaware, totally unexpected, Totally not anticipated, and it worked, but only to such a point. He was supposed to cross with two more detachments than he ended up being able to. That translates to 3,000 more men. That's about double what he brought. That's a a lot of men. Over double what he brought. So that's a lot of people that were not able to cross. The other issue that was going on is there were supposed to be coordinated attacks from other generals in the area, but of course, any time that you've got exact timelines that need to be followed, they're not. The crossing was supposed to happen at midnight, for instance. didn't start until 3 in the morning. They were supposed to have a morning attack, but they didn't actually get there until it was morning, so this whole thing was delayed. The other generals didn't actually do what they were supposed to do. One of them ended up attacking an outpost nearby early. It would have ruined this entire plan. Oh, yeah, and you're just hoping for the best, and we're talking about a Pennsylvania winter. Yeah. There's no the best (laughs) there. No. So this was rough. This was a rough situation. A lot of things had gone wrong. Washington was very frustrated and very angry, and at one point, one of his generals came to him and said, Sir, we just crossed a river, and we've been marching, I think it's nine miles from where they landed to Trenton. That's a nine-mile march through the weather. People have literally died in this time. I mean, not many, but still. But still, it's absolutely possible. And one of his generals came to him and said, Sir, our powder is getting wet. And he said, I don't care. We're going to go in with the bayonet then. We're taking Trenton. And so this was one of those, victory or death was actually the call word for this mission. So it was very obvious when they left what exactly the stakes were. But it ended up working out. The Hessians had no guards or patrols. There was a very short but fierce fight. Washington managed to penetrate the area just about exactly where the engineers told Rawl that he should build fortifications. And like we said, the numbers speak for themselves. Massive favoring of the Continentals. Huge victory for them in terms of morale and support from their own countrymen. Jumping back just a little bit here, Mm -hmm. just again, because if you don't know this era of war, powder or wet gunpowder, you're like, oh, well, that's miserable because anything else, you're like, I'm wet, that's bad. Wet gunpowder is useless. Absolutely useless. Yeah, it won't spark, it won't do the thing, it might, but it's not going to send the bullet downfield. Yeah, it's not even like, oh, we won't have as many shots, it's we will have no shots. Right. And so, again, Washington's response to that was, we're just going in with bayonets. I don't care. We're here. We're not going back across that river. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. They, they probably would have died at that point. So, again, the point we wanted to make with this battle is absolutely the importance of having good fortifications, but also having scouts and pickets. When you choose to forego that, even if the weather is bad, even if everybody's been telling you, no, there's no way that that person would ever attempt that, yes, they will. If there's a chance at winning, somebody's going to try it. And if you're not prepared for it, history is going to judge you the loser, much like the battle itself. Yeah. 
Have your camp set up proper. Have your camp set and up for proper. For them, it meant guards. For us, it means hand washing. Camps are important. Yeah, hand washing and having making sure your food's in order. Like it's <laughs> all very important. That's about all I got on the Battle of Trenton. What about yeah. you, thumbs? I think that it's pretty straightforward. As I said, it's not a complicated battle. It's just an important. Exactly. Yeah. Like we said, it was very important in terms of recruitment for the future of the Continental Army in that war. So we apologize for running a little over today. I'm just a little excited to talk about camp life. It's not something we get to talk about much. But if you're enjoying what you're what you're hearing here and you kind of want to see what we're putting out, I'm going to be trying to get a meme format together so I can start having some memes on our Instagram, little facts and figures about the battles and people that we're talking about. You can find that Art of War Gaming podcast on Instagram. Our email artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. Please send me any thoughts, critiques, criticisms that you might have that you might want to have on the show, any issues or mistakes that we made. Even just if you want to chat and give us some feedback about where we could go from here. We'd we love would absolutely to love to hear from absolutely. you. Absolutely. And then Facebook, The Art of Wargaming. You can see thumbs in our smiling faces right there. I've got a smirk in that one. That worked way better than I... It did. It did. It was a good picture. And then Thumbs has got his general nerdery podcast on our parent network of Earverm. Yep. The other Earverm podcast right now is again general nerdery and fried squirms which is a horror movie podcast if you like one of our podcasts you'll probably like all of our podcasts we got some good stuff going on so general nerdery and again anything else is going on for the ear firm please check it out if that sounds like we want and again for this podcast if you enjoy what we're doing if you'd like us to continue if you want to promote what we're doing please repost like and subscribe don't forget you can also find us at taowargaming.com taowargaming.com absolutely but I think for this week this has been Yaga Malark and Thumbs signing off.